TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. How, how would we set it up if we were building it from scratch? How would we set it up not to adjust for the modern game, but to be uh, centered around the modern game? And we've made uh, already made some some structural and leadership changes, and we'll continue to make uh, more adjustments as well. You're likely to see a director of hitting and a director of pitching join the organization to ensure that we are building these departments, uh, teaching the game, evaluating players for where the game is now and where the game uh, will be going, uh, make sure we continue to be at the cutting edge. That's Theo Epstein from September. Our producer Mike Chen reaching back and grabbing that as Theo set up some of what was going to happen in the offseason, and now it has happened. This hour on The Score is brought to you by the Illinois Secretary of State's office. Visit www.realid.ilsos.gov. Time to uh, go to the Alpimonte Ford hotline, Alpimonte Ford in Melrose Park. As we bring in the director of hitting for the Chicago Cubs, Mr. Justin Stone, nice enough to take some time out on a Saturday morning to join us on Inside the Clubhouse. Good morning, Justin. Good morning, guys. So Elite Baseball, at Elite Baseball, uh, let's talk about the genesis of how you became the director of baseball opera, uh, baseball hitting for the Chicago Cubs. Talk a little bit about Elite Baseball, what it entails, what it incorporates, and uh, how long you've been doing that. Sure. Yeah, our company's been around for about 10 years now, and I've always had an interest in combining science with baseball, and that's kind of uh, where my coaching career began. 20 years ago, I was a full-time assistant at Indiana State University, and I started my master's degree program in, in human kinetics. Um, so it was just a, it, like being at the, at the right place at the right time. My coaching career has evolved as technology has evolved, and I've kind of always been lockstep and key with that. And over a period of time, after spending a little bit of time being the, the White Sox general manager at the, the Bull Sox Training Academy. Um, I really started diving into 2D video analysis and then 3D motion capture. And I knew at some point I was going to start my own technology-infused baseball company. And I did that 10 years ago at Elite Baseball Training. So it's, it's a combination of trying to continue my education, of studying combined with my coaching experience, but always trying to see what's next. What can we push forward in hitting and science and merging those together? So I've consulted for a number of technology companies as well that have trying to get into baseball with the, with the influx of just information into our game today. So that's advantageous too, because once you consult for those companies, the major league team wants to want to learn how to use it or how they can apply it. So before working for the Cubs, uh, you know, being a consultant, I was also a tech consultant for several different major league teams. And that's kind of brought us to where we are today. So it's getting at this business, at this industry from a lot of different angles, which makes sense. Um, there's a lot of stuff that is very confusing, even to people who are interested, like, like us. Force plate, K-vest, bat sensor, mov- movement screen. Um, what Would you tell us, like, what are one or two of your favorite tools these days to use as you try and educate hitters? 
Well, they're all small pieces of a larger puzzle, and though I weigh certain pieces of it more than others, it still goes back to quality of human movement. And I think what we've done a long time in our game is did a lot of surface comps. This player looked like that player, so we think he's going to play the same way. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. When you have to get underneath the surface of the player and see their unique movement capabilities and then match the patterns of their throws or their swings to that, And so that's where the scientific process goes into it a little bit more, where you're going to test getting under the surface with first a movement screen, and then you can apply the technology to see if that movement is efficient or not for that player. So, for instance, if you have somebody on the looser end of a movement spectrum, think of it like a big move like Josh Donaldson, or if you Mm -hmm. can picture King Griffey Jr. in his heyday, he had a ton of torque, a ton of what we call hip and shoulder separation, and it was very violent whippy and aesthetically pleasing well those are players on the looser end of the movement category and they're going to have a way different move in their swing than somebody like alex bregman who we would assume to be a tighter mover much more short compact some Mm -hmm. people call that max effort or violent and one is not better than the other but if you put alex bregman's move on king griffey jr and vice versa it would be a disaster that's a train wreck So there's a lot of hit and miss in that if you're trying to eyeball this and say, let's try this. What the technology allows us to do is be a little more certain on where to start with a guy to make sure that we are matching up their moves in the batter's box to their movement capabilities. Let's take a a prime example of a Cub player, Justin, if you can and if you will. Let's let's just look at maybe uh, Javier Baez and how some of your technology has worked and what you're doing with him if that's not giving away too many of the trade secrets right now. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll hold off on that right okay. now for the fact that... How about a player like Javier to... Baez? <laughs> How about Gary Sheffield, <laughs> which is a comp we yeah, used I mean, to hear we, and, and that's a good point. I mean, you know, uh, we, don't have to, we don't have to delve into the Cub players because that would be giving up too much, I guess, at this point. But um, let's, let's say you have a high strikeout uh, guy that comes into the league and you, you know that he has some of the flexibilities of a Baez or a guy like Ken Griffey Jr. Where, where, where would your technology take you with a guy like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good question because that does come up from time to time when I'm evaluating players for different reasons. And sometimes the answer is, this is just who he is. So a player on the looser end of the spectrum has a high-risk-reward payout. And what that means is, with a long, think of like flexibility and mobility – placing a rope right in the center of your body. A player with high movement capabilities has a longer rope. And think of that like a pitcher. Mm -hmm. For years, we want long, loose, lanky pitchers because they have very long ropes in the middle of their body that can produce more whip. Well, for a pitcher, that's advantageous because there's no time constraint. For a hitter, there's risk-reward. So for the hitter, we can produce more whip, which means the whip and torque of their swing will outplay their musculature, which means a player that's even smaller can create more exit velocity than a player just with muscle mass. Got it. But the downside of that, because the rope is longer in the middle of their body, it takes them longer to get up to full speed, and they have to start committing to the ball sooner. So what would you assume with those type of players? High reward. They're going to hit a lot of home runs, but they're going to have, they're going to have more swing and miss in them because they've got to start the move sooner. So strikeouts are going to have a tendency to be high on those type of players. Is, that's just who they are. You're not really going to change that. Is there an ideal common goal 
um, for hitters on the big league level in terms of uh, we used to hear about the barrel in the zone for as long as possible or speed, or now we obviously hear about the plane of the swing, the angle of the swing. Is there a, a common desirable goal? Yeah, the quality of contact will always reign. And there's certain characteristics of that path of which we call just maintaining the purity of the arc. And that really starts when we first launch the swing. So if there's any air in the initial launch and first move, there's going to be compensating moves in that swing path throughout the rest of it, which means it's going to cut out of the zone early. So you have to identify the initial flaw to get the end result you want. Trying to correct that at the ball back collision, which is historically what coaches have tried to do, we see the bats cutting out of the zone, so I'm going to try to fix that when the ball is hitting the bat. But the original error caused that compensating flaw at contact, so that's where the technology allows us to go back in time and isolate that error. For the untrained mind, can you tell us what Kyle Schwarber accomplished in 2019, what he might have been doing uh before that and what he's doing now, now being toward the end of the year where he was an accomplished hitter, hitting the ball hard to all fields, um, you know, obviously laying off of some pitches that were, were getting him out before. But, you know, kind of growth chart of his player development within the realm of his swing. Well, I, I can't speak. Sorry, we lost you for Justin, a do we have you? I think you cut out. We might have to make a new connection with uh, Justin. Let's see. Is he still there? We'll check and All see. Right. If not, we'll call him back. Yeah. I don't know if he he's can talk about He's going to tell me he's not breaking down any more Cub players well, for maybe us. Not, yeah, maybe not Schwarber specifically yeah. is where I think you right. were going, Justin. Right. Yeah. So, like I said, it's it's probably not best for me to comment on a player that I haven't right. worked with personally well, We're much. talking about big success here, you know, so go ahead. Correct. Um, but what I will say on that yeah. is Anthony Iaposi and I have a track record that goes way back. We're both – there's kind of a circle of hitting coaches in big league baseball that have all stemmed off of a larger tree. And mm-hmm. I think of Andy Haynes, who was right. a college roommate of mine, now right. the Brewers. And Anthony and I used to talk shop 15, 20 years ago with John Maley, who were all very close. So what I can tell you is that we're going to be very aligned in the approach we'll take. And you kind of look, as the director of hitting, you're kind of a manager of a department, right? And you think about what the manager does for a big league team on a day-in, day-out basis with players of all different skill sets. And it's putting those people in the right place to succeed and using their successful traits to build a bigger unit. And I think that's what Anthony and I will do on the hitting side. Mm -hmm. We have a whole lot of good coaches with unique skill sets. It's part of my job to put them on the right seat of the bus and have them feed off each other. My my bad for asking about a Cub player again. I, I know I know better. <laughs> well, so uh, you're trying to lure me into that in your first interview, Bruce. No, I, I really I'm, I'm really not because what I was concentrating on is the success of what we've seen already. You know, with um, with uh, guys like Schwarber, not not what they're trying to do to improve themselves from here and beyond. But I understand you have to protect you know, that that type of uh, intelligence as well. Something that Schwarber has done so well over the past, the last three and a half, four months of the season is change the approach with two strikes. We've watched Anthony Rizzo do this and be brilliant at it. I feel like looking around the league, so many sluggers are asked to also then become contact guys in certain situations. And some people can 
Can some people just simply not because of the mechanics of their their swing? I can't figure out if sometimes it's a willingness or a selflessness that's not there, or if it is mechanically near impossible for some folks. No, it, it's possible. It's um, and this is an interesting question because, and again, I can't speak to what Joe did with the entire hitting piece of it because I wasn't a part of that. But I know with David Ross being hired and he spent a lot of time in the front office in the first couple of weeks after his announcement. Mm-hmm. And he would just bounce in my office. And, I'd, and of course I would just start a flurry of notes because I wanted everything to be in his voice, not mine because he's the manager and that's what we're trying to get to. Hmm. But we put an emphasis on, I said, David, what do you believe in a two strike approach? What, what do you want me to voice to the hitters? And it was just that, like, when do we have to shorten up, change maybe my mindset of a hitter to get a good B swing off that is still going to be valuable to the team. And there's still going to be strikeouts in there. And for certain players, yes, the mechanics are we know ahead of time are going to lead them to having more strikeouts. But there is a mindset that goes along with a two-strike approach that I know David really values. As far as Rep Soto, could you explain that machine? I'm going to try to buy one for Matt for the holidays. Um, uh, is it going to cost me? Can I get one for thirty nine ninety nine somewhere like Best Buy? Or? Under four grand? Yeah, I don't you think... can actually. If you have 3999 <laughs> So explain the machine um, and the technology of it. Sure. So it's, it's basically just a – think of the sonar ball tracking. And the common terms you're going to hear off that are the same things you hear on TV, exit velocity and launch angle. And those are very important, but – I'm looking at more of how the ball-bat collision produces spin, Mm -hmm. and I can learn a lot about the path of the bat by looking at the spin coming off of the bat. So whether that's the spin axis, which it measures, Mm -hmm. think about that of a clock, if I get true backspin versus side spin, and we use the, the hours of a clock to define that. And then the spin rate, I'm trying to keep the ball spinning with backspin within a certain parameter because... In, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and more, we were trying to create backspin as much as we could because the backspin ball will play more, but only to a degree because you can actually mishit the ball with a tremendous amount of backspin, and it's not advantageous. So we're trying to keep guys into a good spin realm, and I can look at the batting practice reports or in-game reports and tell you what's happening with the path of the bat based on the spin. That's a very valuable tool for me. I've heard people talk about contact point, you know, like trying to connect – have that collision be in front of the plate. How does that relate to launch angle? Is, is, are, are those concepts um, is symmetrical with each other, if that makes sense? Yeah, you have to, to match up contact point with where a player gets connected in the zone. So that's going to be different from player to player, too. And this is something that we have to be careful of, especially when we have younger, sometimes pro hitters. They say, well, I heard Josh Donaldson talk on TV, and he's trying to catch everything a foot out in front of home plate. Well, that's good for Josh Donaldson because maybe he gets connected, and connected means my body rotation and my hands are working in unison with each other, and they're turning as one fused unit. So a player that does that more over home plate will want to catch the ball out in front to do their damage. But there are some players that get connected very deep in the zone, and if I get connected deeper behind my body and I'm trying to get the ball out in front, as a right-handed hitter, those are just 6-3 rollovers all day. So we have to make sure that we're matching up the mechanics of the player, the physiology of them, and then then factor in their approach of where they should be attacking the ball. 
It, it, obviously, there are some players who will sit in front of you, Justin, and be completely overwhelmed by this and not have it register, and it's not the way they need to get the information. It was interesting the way you said when David Ross comes in, you're taking notes because you want it to be coming in his voice. Is that part of the mindset here in terms of communicating this stuff to players in a way that they can internalize it? Yeah, no doubt. You have to build trust with a player, and, and trying to show them how smart you are is never going to win them over. My philosophy on that is give the player as little as I need to give him to get him to do what I need him to do. Hmm. And, and I know that that can sound tricky coming from a guy that has a biomechanics background. But again, remember the background I'm coming from. I'm stepping out to do this interview right now, working with the 10 and 11 year olds in the class. So if you, I really think it's teaching in the off season. Yeah, you need to use the exactly. uh, wood bat more often too. <laughs> we hear the ping. You hear the in the background. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But really, like, think about teaching a child of something that's as complex and explosive, dynamic as a hitting swing. And I think you, you get very good skills at learning how to articulate your message when you teach youth players that don't have much of a skill set yet. At Elite so Baseball, I, Justin, hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how people can get in touch with you and uh, get in with uh, Elite Baseball. Well, thanks. Um, the website is EliteBaseballTraining.com, and then we have a lot of video content that we put out on EliteBaseball.tv. We appreciate the time, and uh, you know, even my, my prodding into your private business was done with class and respect. I appreciate that. Yeah, so, well, uh, Bruce, I, I love talking hitting, and I don't really have any other skill sets. I said I'd be, I'd be the greeter at uh, the Dollar General or Walmart, <laughs> but I didn't do this. So anytime you want to talk hitting, I'm available. We appreciate it, Justin. Best of luck in the new position. Congrats, and we'll talk to you sometime down the road. Thanks. All right. Justin Stone, director of hitting for the year Chicago Cubs. We failed to get into – we could have spent an hour with him, and I'm I'm sure maybe in the summer when we have more expanded time or you're doing hit and run, you know, you can do an hour with a guy like this because, you know, you have to – we haven't even been able to begin to talk about the type of people he's going to hire in the organization, mm-hmm. what they're going to be teaching, you know, down the road. So uh, in- interesting stuff, and – you know, the Cubs and all a lot of teams are getting up to date with all the scientific data that uh, that Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer talk about the, where the technology is changing every six months in baseball right yeah, now. Yeah, and so they've gone out and found a guy who is at the very forefront of knowing everything that's available. That, that's, uh, that's like baseball porn for me, to, to, li- <laughs> to listen to that stuff and, and to think about it. And... I love that he knows. I see the Vaseline over there, by the way. <laughs> That's disgusting. I love that he knows, and he said it, his goal is to say as little as possible, to communicate as little as possible to a hitter to get them to do what he wants them to do. Because guys can be overwhelmed so easily with that stuff. Like Keep some of simple, our listeners stupid. were. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It when, is. when we uh, come back, uh, more talk, uh, baseball, Cubs, and Sox, winter meetings post their winter ahead, 312-644-6767, text Matt at 6711. Joe Girardi expected to join us before we're out of here today. After that, Speaks and, of course, our good friend Steve Rosenblum joining us for uh, a couple, two, three hours after that. Keep it right here on 670 The Score. Welcome back in on Inside the Clubhouse on 670 The Score. He is Bruce Levine. I am Matt Spiegel. That was fun stuff with Justin yes. Stone. Yeah, we need to delve more into that uh, that realm, and we'll probably do that with some of the White Sox and Cubs 
uh, metrics people down the road. I mean, they are very, uh, you know, stand it, keep it close to the vest type people. I understand it, you know. Although he's willing to talk to you about the science of it right. and the theoreticals of it. We just have to be crafty in asking about certain swing types and know I who was, we mean. I was not crafty at all. <laughs> I just, you know, I hit him with a blunt instrument uh, right over the head. Hey. Tell us about why Baez is successful. Tell us about why Schwarber has been successful. Hey, you know? some, some pitchers you are know, crafty and some are stuff guys. You're more of a stuff guy. It's not more. It's it's really not more. Uh, it's, it's not really a... Uh, a mystery anymore. Everybody has these people working for them right now. And uh, they're all staying up to snuff on the scientific end of the game. Uh, it's still up to the scouts uh, to find the good players and the development people to develop. And this is just a nice little uh, part of what they can do to help develop these players once they get there. Yeah, we were uh, talking about some of the drafts in recent years that have yielded very little, uh, if, if anything, uh, for the Cubs. In 2016, there's nothing on the big league level um, at all from the 2016 draft for the Cubs around the league. And these are people who, who were chosen late in the first or beyond. A lot of pitchers, Dakota Hudson, Zach Gallen, Shane Bieber, Joey Lucchese, Zach Plesak. Also in that draft, Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, Pete Alonzo. There's yeah. a lot of guys there who uh, are the, contributing. But, but uh, the, the Cubs probably, what, are you, what year are you talking about, 16? 16. So they probably drafted like 24th or somewhere around there. And Hudson, I think, went 27. Right. All these guys are down you know, around there. You know, from, from, uh, Find, findable. From 16 on, you know, they, they drafted uh, very low in the first round. Yeah. You know, no, that sure. was just the way it went and uh, understandable. But, you know, there's other rounds in the draft. For sure. But there's there was also a philosophy in place where um, they believed in position players. 2015, they took Ian Happ. Mike Soroka, Walker Bueller went a little bit later in that first mm -hmm. round. And they've mm -hmm. talked about maybe willing to focus on high-end pitching stuff a little bit more as they move forward. Well, they did, you know, but uh, that still hasn't worked out very well. Now, the 2018 draft looks very good for him in the first round. With Nico, first Nico, guy from yeah. that draft to get to the right. bigs. And uh, hopefully he's going to continue his player development at the major league level. We don't know that for sure. Um, you know, and you and I talked about that off the air a little bit, whether or not Schwarber having going having to go back to the minor leagues, Hap having to go back to the minor leagues, Russell having to go back to the minor leagues. Does that give them pause with their young players like Nico going forward to make sure that they have enough player development at the minor league level, no matter what type of uh, quick success he had, you know, for the few weeks that he was with the Cubs in 2019. This uh, this text, do the Sox even have an analytics department? Oh, yes, they do. As part of the, the rebuild over these last three years, a lot has been done to bulk up their analytics and, uh, and their science uh, approach to development and scouting and such. Bottom of the hour is brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. Today, get to the Sprint on Rand Road in Arlington Heights between 1 and 3 p.m. to enter the Sprint Power Play Payday Contest. The winner signs a one-day contract with the Wolves and gets $5,000. And this segment is brought to you by Subway. Subway Rest Restaurants feature a different six-inch sub for three seventy-nine every day. Subway, make it what you want. At participating restaurants, additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Nomar Mazzara, your new right fielder. Uh, did you like the trade, or how did how did you uh, 
Uh, what was your perception of it after they made that deal at the winter meetings uh, last Tuesday? It is um, to me, it's a worthy flyer on a lefty power power bat with two years of control, and he does have easy power when he hits it. My God, it, it yeah, comes ball off. Flies. Ball does fly. Um, he doesn't hit enough fly balls, it, and he has not been willing to change and become more of that fly ball guy. If they can unlock that, then they'll have something. Th- that said, Frank Menachino is uh, the new hitting instructor, yeah. so uh, we're going to see some different things here. It's a, it's a change of the guard with the Chicago White Sox in their hitting department, and mm-hmm. Menachino has a very good reputation and uh, has had good success with people down the road, and you know, one year uh, at uh, AAA, and now he's the guy, so... Uh, we're going to see what type of impact he has with some of these young hitters, and uh, there's some really good ones. Uh, when when I talked to him um, when he was hired, I asked him if um, being able to help any of these guys have better at-bats would constitute into more walks, and he said, well, we don't concentrate on getting walks. We just concentrate on within the realm of that at-bat finding that right pitch for you and uh, making sure that uh, it's, you're just not sitting there at three, two all the time and striking out. Mm. And that was the, you, you, the subtle change in the success of Jan Mancata last year compared to the year before he was seeing more pitches than anybody else. He struck out 220 times. Uh, he cut that by 60 or 70 strikeouts, maybe 50 strikeouts, but more importantly, his approach changed to finding that pitch Earlier in the count, that good pitch that you want to pick out, he didn't have to wait till 3-2 to strike out. He was going after it early in the count, sometimes the first pitch, sometimes in the first three or four. Uh, that was a, par- a good part of his success last year. Yeah, I like things that I've heard about Menachino. I like the relationships, as we have uh, heard them described between a lot of the young players and Frank Menachino. We'll take a break on 670, the score. It is inside the clubhouse. You look at him differently than you look at Vin Scully or Jack Buck. Um, He's a colorful character who happens to have his own play-by-play style. Uh, He's an enduring presence. He has insight into the game. He's a wonderful storyteller. Uh, He wears his heart on his sleeve. Almost no broadcaster is universally popular, no matter how skillful they may be. But when you talk about the depth of feeling, the people who are Hawk Harrelson fans feel that much more deeply than those who might say of another broadcaster, oh, yeah, he's good. I like him. You know? No one says they like Hawk. They love Hawk. And if they don't like him, they have something else to say. (laughs) But nobody was ever unaware that he was there. Oh, man. Enjoyed that conversation the other day that Danny Parkins and I had with Bob Costas quite a bit. I love that little outro. Nobody was ever unaware that Hawk Harrelson was there. That's that's an understatement. Right. He failed to say some people hated him. Well, he kind of he hinted at that. He's, he, well, he's smarter than I am. He can say that and everybody gets it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, he, but you're right. I mean, that's the one thing we've always talked about, Hawk, who got the honor the other day of uh, going into the... Uh, 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 broadcaster's wing of the Hall of Fame this mm-hmm. summer, getting the Ford Frick Award. Congrats to Hawk and his family. Well-deserved. Uh, such an iconic guy. And uh, as Bob pointed out, uh, 
Loved by many, hated by some, never ignored. Impactful is a word yeah, that you, you couldn't used ignore him. Cup fans uh, were disturbed by him, um, maybe from more so from 2005 on when they actually won a championship before the Cubs did, and mm-hmm. uh, you know people. I mean, but you you couldn't ignore the Hawk because he he was compelling in the way that he broadcast. He was so passionate and. So full of uh, you know intent when it came to uh, showing that he loved the White Sox and that uh, you know them and them alone were the uh, kings for him every day. But he was always very complimentary to other teams' players as well. You know, I, I, who were the broadcasters in your in, in your youth, Bruce? That 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 you think about, that you remember, that made you smile. The ones that made you love the game the most. Well, you know, obviously, growing up in Chicago, you know, it was uh, Jack Brickhouse, you know, here. He was the the king of broadcasters for many years, and he did both the White Sox and the Cubs. So that's pretty unique. Unabashed Homer when he did both of them? Uh, yeah, maybe known more for being a Cub Homer, mm-hmm. but he did White Sox games for, you know, for decades. I mean, he did, they did Cub games and Sox games on WGN, and that was... I mean, how unique was that? Yeah. I mean, so he he taught a lot of us, you know, from kids on how what the game was, and he always took instructions out, you know, as far as well nine ways to uh, you know to get to first base. Here's you know here's your you know ways you know catcher's interference, hit by sure. pitch, you know. So uh, he was entertaining. He was very impactful uh, here in Chicago. You know, a lot of the White Sox fans on. Radio, listen to Bob Elson in the 50s and 60s. And, mm-hmm. then, and then Harry, with his own particular brand of broadcasting, was uh, tremendously impactful here from you know the 70s on for first the White Sox and then the Cubs. We asked uh, Costas about Hawk as kind of a dying breed. If, 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 if Costas agreed, and I want to know if you agree, Bruce, about how broadcasters these days uh, are less and less like uh, unabashed homers and with personalities and catchphrases and such, why it's happening. I think with network television, with baseball broadcast packages where a guy in Tacoma could be watching the White Sox or the Red Sox or the Dodgers or the Tampa Bay Rays if he or she wants to, or the Internet and whatnot, there's a certain... uh, a certain homogenizing of broadcasting. There are still many characters in the booth, but most of them are people who have been around a while uh, before uh, that kind of leavening force of everybody's trying to sound like a network announcer type of thing. Uh, on the other side of town for a long time with the Cubs, Harry Carey, not a former player, a career broadcaster, but certainly a tremendously colorful character and certainly a homer, whether he was a Cardinal homer or, or a Cub homer, whatever the case might be. Then you have somebody like Vin Scully, who learned at, uh, at, the, at the feet of Red Barber and was meticulous in never sounding like a homer. Uh, and certainly you couldn't say anything critical about Vin's approach. Someone like Jack Buck split the difference. You could tell that his heart was with the Cardinals, but he wasn't as over the top as somebody like Harry Carey. I guess the point that I'm getting to is, if you look at the dozens of broadcasters who have been honored, there may be similarities among them, but each is distinctive in his own way. You would not want Harry Carey, as if he could, to act like Vin Scully. You wouldn't want Vin Scully, as if he could, to act like Hawk Harrelson. 
but the history of broadcasting and the history of baseball would be the poorer if everybody was the same. Even if everybody tried to model themselves after whomever you consider to be the gold standard, then there would be no one who was distinctive. The reason you value someone like Hawk Harrelson or Harry Carey or Jack Buck or Scooter Rizzuto or Mel Allen or whomever it may be that you really enjoy is because there's nobody quite like them. And also also the voice of your youth in the summer, and wherever you went, especially on radio. Uh, these days, maybe not as much, but certainly here in town, you know, uh, Chicago is still a big, huge radio market, and, uh, you know, the, the rights fees and the rights for Cubs and Sox baseball are still very important. But, you know, Matt, uh, broadcasters became an entity of the marketing department. So it used to be that broadcasters marketed the team mm-hmm. on their own, pretty much, and they knew that that was a function. But now uh, marketing departments kind of control the broadcasts and there's so much, so much to do within the broadcast itself now. Everything's so sponsored that the spontaneity of the individual broadcaster is challenged because of the fact, you know, you know, this walk is sponsored by, you know, whoever. This home run was so there's so much to do now for a broadcaster as far as reading uh, you know, ads that uh, it kind of takes away from the loosey-goosey uh, atmosphere of the um, broadcast itself, I believe. Yeah, you know, the best are juggling those kind of responsibilities with actually giving you what you need for the game, and then if there's a possibility, squeezing some personality in there as well. It's still the hardest thing to do, uh, in, in particular, I think, a radio broadcast of knowing you, you're the eyes and ears of that particular group of thousands and thousands and in some cases hundreds of thousands of people so you can't lose track of where the ball is at at any point in time you you must not uh with television uh they are there so uh you know the tv broadcasters don't have to tell you there's a ball hit into the gap you're watching it right so there's there's that function of it that you must you must pay attention to as a radio broadcaster and be able to do Three hours, three and a half hours with your color commentator mm-hmm. of uh, entertainment as well. Very difficult. I think it's most challenging still to this day to be really good at broadcasting baseball is a tremendous challenge. That's why some of us who've been in the business for decades still dream of that kind of thing. Because you get close to it and you watch it happen. Whenever I get a chance to watch Pat Hughes do it or watch Zach Zaidman do it, the pressure and intensity that's there for that long of a period, but it better sound comfortable. You better not sound like there's a filter going on between your brain and your mouth. And and the genius of that, you know, is to have a great color commentator like, like Coomer, who is, you know, uh, folksy to the point, Chicago folksy, you know, where he, he can uh, he can loosen things up, have his own jargon that he uses, and <clears throat> they can have their own fun with the broadcast. Same thing with, uh, you know, with Ed and DJ with the White Sox. They have their own routine, their own rapport that they've developed over the last 10, 12, 15 years, and that's the White Sox broadcast. It's different. It's a different listen than the Cubs broadcast, but nonetheless – you know, still favored by White Sox fans. Some like it, some don't. Same with the Cubs. But uh, the uniqueness of the different broadcasts in Chicago 
is startling and it's interesting at the same time. I'll tell you what, to be able to talk this much baseball, actual baseball in December is awesome. Whether it's Hall of Fame stuff like Ford Frick or whether it's all the trades or the signings. We've got um, another show next week, obviously, and onward and onward. Um, And right now, in trade conversations and rumors, the names are... Chris Bryant, Francisco Lindor, Mookie Betts, yeah, awesome. Carlos Correa, Nolan Arenado. Right. It's crazy. It's yeah, now, unbelievable. Now, now Arenado is in the in that part of the that may be blocking Chris Bryant from being out there. Or there's some rumors about them trade for each other. Yeah. <laughs> Less contract control for Colorado, more well, for the Cubs. You know me, a couple months ago I was dreaming about a Bryant for Mookie Betts, that kind of there thing. You, but Bryant go. for Arenado, I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Crazy. Mike Chen did a fantastic job of producing this show. Matt, thank you. You fantastic co-host as always. We thank um, Justin Stone, the director of hitting for the Chicago Cubs. People can follow me on Twitter at MLB Bruce Levine. It's going to be a frantic couple weeks before Christmas here. A lot going on. I'll be writing for 670 The Score, 670thescore.com on the Cubs and Sox every day. Have a great week and have fun with Rosie. I will. Great stuff, Bruce Levine. Thank you. Follow him at MLB Bruce Levine. I'm at Matt Spiegel, 670. Steve Rosenblum and I coming up next on 670 The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.